You could be seated. And let me say happy Mother's Day to you all. And on this Mother's Day, I have a passage of Scripture for us that is indeed about family, about betrothal and weddings, marriage, childbearing, and God's abundant blessing in it all. And that, so far, might sound quaint, sweet, pleasant. But this story in Genesis 29 and 30 is far from quaint or sweet. It's actually full of pain, confusion, deception, divisions, and God's discipline. It's actually a rather messed up story. A story that involves polygamy, infertility, jealousy and envy, even superstitions. And yet, God blesses and moves his plan along in spite of all this, even from one angle, through all of this. In short, our passage today is about a dysfunctional family and a faithful God. From one angle, that's what the majority of the book of Genesis is all about. God chose to accomplish his plan to redeem and restore fallen humanity through one believing but rather messed up family. Story after story in Genesis just follows the same pattern. This one extended family, yes, generally believes in God and generally wants to go his way, but often doesn't. And yet God is faithful to his unilateral, unequivocal covenant and promises. That's really the whole storyline of the Bible, isn't it? Through one messed up family, and later through one rather messed up nation, God eventually brought about a perfect son, a perfect savior, the, the perfect seed of Abraham, the perfect Israelite to bring true and lasting salvation and restoration to any, anywhere who want in on it. And that really is much better news. It really is a much better story than some cute or quaint picturesque familial story that you might find on Little House on the Prairie or something like that. This story is certainly more real. It's certainly more relatable. And for many here this morning, Mother's Day, you might say, isn't that cute. It's not that quaint. It's not that picturesque. But you've seen God be faithful through it all. So we pick up the story with Jacob. Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. And Jacob is on a journey quick review. It was a couple weeks since we were in Genesis. Jacob left home back in chapter 27 for two reasons. One, mom told him that your brother Esau intends to kill you, so you better go to Uncle Laban's place. That's chapter 27, verse 42 and following. But then secondly, dad said in chapter 28, verse 2, don't marry a Canaanite woman which, by the way, is not about ethnicity so much as it is about faith and religion. Don't marry a Canaanite woman, so go to Uncle Laban to find a wife. And so he leaves mom and dad and the family and the land. And on his journey back to Uncle Laban, Jacob fell asleep and he had a dream. Chapter 28, verse 12. Remember, he dreamt of a ladder or really steps, ascending from earth all the way up to heaven, connecting heaven and earth. Angels ascending and descending upon it. It was then after he woke up that he received a word from the Lord, relaying and renewing the parameters of the Abrahamic covenant, now passed on to the third generation. Remember those parameters, those promises of the Abrahamic covenant that there would be 
a place for God's people. There would be a people, a great many people. There would be prosperity for these people. A blessing is the language of Genesis. A blessing to them and a blessing through them to the whole world. And here, uniquely in chapter 28, the emphasis is on God's presence with Jacob as God brings this about. We'll just see it again. If if you have your Bible open, look at chapter 28, verse 15, where God said, Behold, I am with you. Presence. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is what the ladder, the steps represented. God coming down, God being with him. Jacob exclaimed after his dream, verse 16, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. How awesome is this place, he says. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. God's presence with him on this journey as God fulfills these promises attached to Abraham. And yet, chapter 28 ends with this curious, if not concerning, vow made by Jacob. Verse 20, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. What? If God will be with me, well, you don't have to question that, Jacob. You said he's with you. He said he's with you. You saw it. You experienced it. If God will be with me, then he'll be my God. Huh. What do we make of that? Well, not sure what to make of it. We read on. So we come to Genesis 29 this week. Genesis 29, let me read the first 14 verses to get us started. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of the well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well." Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go. Pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth And watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, my bone, and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now I should tell you, I originally planned to show you four lessons from the whole of Genesis 29 and 30 today. And early this morning, I made a change. We'll only cover three of those lessons today. And we'll leave part of chapter 30 for next week. So three lessons. And the first comes from the section I just read. The first lesson we'll see this morning is God graciously directs our steps. 
God graciously directs our steps, and that's what he's doing here with Jacob. God's hand was apparently upon the journeying Jacob, leading him to this precise well where he'd meet this specific woman who would be his future wife in love of his life, Rachel. Yes, it it will get more complicated than that once we read on, but 14 verses in, we should be encouraged. This is a high point. This is a good moment. This is what he left home for. This is what dad said to do. Get yourself a girl, not a Canaanite girl. Go see Laban. The encounter at the well is even reminiscent of how his father Isaac got his wife, Rebecca. It was back in Genesis 24. In Genesis 24, there was a well, livestock, watering the livestock, a beautiful woman, a meeting with Laban, all which resulted in God's orchestration towards a marriage. And throughout the narrative of Genesis 24, in the story of how Isaac got his wife, there are just several statements about God's involvement, his orchestration of these events. It says, God led me here. God appointed this. God led me to you. That's Genesis 24. And yet a careful reading of our passage in Genesis 29 might notice that those kinds of statements about God's activity and involvement and orchestration are actually missing in our passage, despite the similar circumstances in the two stories. So how can it be said that God graciously directs our steps from a passage that doesn't mention God at all, not in passing, not by the narrator, not by any of the characters, and God himself never steps in and speaks as he does in so many other passages in Genesis. Is God actually active here? Well, let's back up and zoom out just a bit. This might help us all think through how we interpret Old Testament stories and how they work. With Old Testament stories in general, we do sometimes come across long-ish sections that have no mention of God. And they should rightly stand out to us because, of course, God is the ultimate protagonist of all these stories. And so it should be curious when he's not mentioned or speaking. And when we encounter those kind of longish sections that do not mention God, there are two interpretive options for us. One is that God is the unseen character in the story, the unseen mover. And the writer is actually communicating to us his hiddenness, but not his inactivity. The book of Esther is a whole book of the Bible like that. No mention of God, and yet he's everywhere. But a second interpretation, a second option when God isn't mentioned is that the character in the story might be going about their business without any attention to God. What's Genesis 29? I think it's both. I think it's both. I think Genesis 29 is showing us the hidden activity of God. And I think it's also about Jacob's apparent lack of attention to God, because it contrasts with the the Genesis 24 story of potential marriage. And remember, we were just coming off of a chapter, chapter 28, where Jacob encountered God, and and God said he'd be with them, and, and Jacob saw the ladder connecting heaven and earth, and he confessed that God was truly in this place. But then there was that vow, that pesky vow. If then, if you'll be with me, then you'll be my God. Well, 
In chapter 29, good things are happening all around. Promising events are unfolding. There's a prospective wife on the horizon, literally. And we don't find Jacob seeking God for direction, exclaiming with thanks and praise for what seems to be unfolding before his very eyes, or testifying to others that God is surely leading him here and is with him. All of which is found, again, in Genesis 24 in that similar story. Now, Jacob is not all bad in these first 14 verses of Genesis 29. No, not at all. He takes initiative. He rolls the heavy stone off the well. He waters the flock for Rachel. He even plants a kiss on her. Which, by the way, likely isn't a Hollywood-style kind of makeout session. It's more like a polite peck on the cheek, simply an affectionate greeting in this culture, like the one he gives to Laban just a little bit later on. He's not all bad here. I mean, after all, he's looking for a wife. And that's what he needs. The promises of the Abrahamic covenant, including A great offspring have been given to him in his generation. They run through him. But there are no kids without a wife, at least not in this story. There are no kids without a wife. He needs a wife. The promises of God given to Father Abraham are TBD until he has a wife. And God is bringing him to a wife. God graciously directs our steps even when he seems absent and even when we don't seek him like we should. He's that gracious. And praise God that his direction in our lives isn't dependent on our prayers. I mean, Of course, that doesn't mean we don't need to pray. We do need to pray. Of course, it doesn't mean that God doesn't work through prayers. Of course, he does work through prayers. But but can you imagine if how things turned out in your life was completely riding on how much you prayed about it? I don't know about you, but I'd be doomed. So who among us cannot resonate with Jacob In chapters 28 and 29, in chapter 28, the spiritual high point, the encounter with God, recognizing his presence, surely God is in this place. He just went to camp. And then chapter 29, while you're going about your business, the good business of looking for a wife, and there's little to no conversation with God or dependence upon God. And that doesn't hold back God's blessing. God is so kind. Here comes beautiful Rachel with flock of sheep behind her. She's going to hear the romantic music playing as her hair flows in the wind and and smells like sheep. But that's (laughs) surely there, but not something to dwell on. Now, every one of us, Jacob, every one of us here today can confess with Psalm 103, he does not treat us according to our sins. He does not repay us as our iniquities deserve. Well, let's read on, shall we? Verse 15 and following of chapter 29 Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. 
So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. The lesson of this second section is that God graciously leads us through discipline. God graciously leads us, and here he leads Jacob, through discipline. In this passage, God is showing the deceiver, Jacob, what it feels like to be deceived. Remember the stolen blessing of Genesis 27? where Jacob pretended to be his hairy, stinky brother to dupe his blind dad into giving him the blessing, not the firstborn Esau. That is tricky. That is deception. And Jacob has now met his match in Uncle Laban, who eventually gets 14 years of labor out of his nephew. The deceiver is deceived. That's the conclusion, but how did it get there? Let's not miss the drama of the story. Jacob had already, back at the well, set his affection on beautiful Rachel, and that's why he has come to Laban's house. A slight curveball, Laban has two daughters. But Jacob is not long distracted by the other daughter. Verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak. What's that mean? Well, it has nothing to do with eyesight. It has to do with appearance. We're not exactly sure what the Hebrew saying means or meant in those days, but it's not good. Leah's weak eyes are contrasted with Rachel's Beauty. Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. We hate to say it, but apparently Leah was rather homely. That's what the passage is saying. And so verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. And so he began to negotiate the dowry, the payment for receiving a bride. Of course, he has no possessions of his own to offer. He fled home rather quickly. He can only offer labor. Scholars say that a typical dowry under these circumstances might have been a few years of labor to marry someone's daughter. But Jacob, you see, doubles that, making Laban an offer that he can't refuse. It's an indication of his love and how certain he wants her. And so it was a deal. And for seven years, Jacob worked and waited. In a sentence that could almost be ripped from the princess bride with Wesley's love for buttercup. Verse 20, Jacob served seven years for Rachel. They seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. But then came the wedding night. Ah, the wedding night. Vows, celebration, feasting, drinking. And then the tent. The consummation. But in the morning, verse 25, behold, it was Leah. Laban switched the daughters. How did he do this? How did Jacob fall for this, we wonder? 
Well, it was dark. It was late. Brides wore veils in these days. And likely some drinking was involved. But however it happened, it happened, and there was no going back now. There was no undoing it. The consummation in these days literally sealed the deal. Jacob was now married to sad-eye Leah, even though he loved Rachel. Jacob's confrontation of Uncle Laban is understandable and yet ironic. What is this you've done to me? Why have you deceived me? Words his father could have said to him that night that he was all dressed up in goat hair. But the trickster Laban is not done with Jacob. He offers Rachel, for real this time, he says, if Jacob will give another seven years labor for her. And in this case, he'll get to marry Rachel right after the wedding week with Leah, but then he'll have to pay it off, as it were, over the next seven years with more labor. And unlike the first seven years of labor, which seemed but a few days, now the second seven-year labor doesn't sound nearly as happy or hopeful. With two wives under one roof, there's tension, rivalry, and partiality. Verse 30, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Fourteen long years of that. A lifetime of consequences. All that to show Jacob what it's like to be deceived. The deceiver was deceived. God was disciplining his servant. His discipline is painful, but it is good. It is loving. God was holding up to Jacob a mirror showing him what deception looks like and feels like. God's gracious to show us our sin sometimes in and through others. Isn't it true that we often excuse our own sin as a bad habit, a mistake, just the way we are, it's a personality quirk, or we say, oh, they're just too sensitive. We minimize and dismiss our sin so easily. But when others do the exact same sin, especially to us, we shake our heads. We can't believe it. We can see their sin for what it is a mile away with 2020 vision. So did Jacob see his own sin in Laban's sin? Did he learn from the discipline? We don't know. The text doesn't say. Perhaps not. If not, that reality might be a sobering lesson for us by itself. That even 14 years in God's painful classroom of discipline does not necessarily guarantee seeing that sin and repenting of it. We might put alongside of Genesis 29 another confrontation, another discipline moment of one of God's servants. I'm talking about the confrontation of King David after his many sins surrounding Bathsheba. Perhaps for months and months, maybe a year and a half, King David hid and covered up his sins of adultery, murder, deception, abuse of power. And then one day the prophet Nathan came knocking. It's in 2 Samuel 12, if you want to read it later. The prophet tells David a story, which David takes to be a real story. It's not. It's an illustration. It's a story about a wealthy landowner who has many sheep who decided to take one sheep from a poor man who only had one. And David is outraged. Who is the man? He wants justice. The prophet says, 
O king, you are the man. That's what he's done to Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And then the Lord brings repentance. Psalm 32 likely looks back to that moment. David says, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. But then I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave my iniquity. How about you? Do you need to do that today? Are you waiting for God to hold up the mirror in a painful way? Don't wait. Are you waiting for an embarrassing public rebuke? Don't wait. Learn from Jacob. Here he's a negative lesson it would seem, but God, oh boy, God's faithfulness in discipline is clearly on display. Well, let's read on. Chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attracted to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I've wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. She called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. We'll stop there. 
The third lesson here is that God graciously fulfills his promises. He fulfills his promises. That's the most fundamental point about this section. That's where we'll land. Oh, but how there is a lot of drama getting there. It doesn't look so promising in the details of the story. And that's exactly the point. God graciously fulfills his promises despite this highly dysfunctional family. Now, I'm not going to trace the drama of this from top to bottom. Let me instead point out the important themes. There are ten of them. That sounds like a lot. Don't worry. It'll keep me moving along. Ten themes here that help us understand the story. And really, we're doing it this way because these themes appear and reappear and reappear throughout the whole passage. Number one, this section is a ping-pong match between these two sisters, Leah and Rachel. Paragraph after paragraph bounces from one sister to the other, to the other sister, to the other. Leah, Rachel, Leah, Rachel. And that is a literary device for what is actually happening. If it feels dizzying reading this, imagine being in the home. <laughs> Two, neither wife has what the other wife has and what they so desperately want. You see, Rachel is loved, but at first has no children. Leah produces children, but isn't loved by her husband. Rachel longs for children, so she envies her sister. She believes she's better off dead if God doesn't give her children. And Leah longs for her husband's affection. She knows she's second rate to Jacob. And she thinks that her mighty childbearing will actually earn his affection eventually. Aren't these hauntingly sad words? Verse 32 of chapter 29, now my husband will love me. Verse 34, now this time my husband will be attached to me. Chapter 30, verse 20, now my husband will honor me. Third, this rivalry was bitter, and the whole household was miserable. I mean, the descriptions are painful to read. Leah was hated. She was in affliction. Rachel envied her sister. Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled my sister and prevailed. Leah said, you have taken away my husband. This is nasty. This is ugly. So fourth, we shouldn't be surprised that this threesome wasn't working out. They never do. Polygamy was never God's intention for marriage. While we don't have explicit prohibition of polygamy in our passage here, we shouldn't assume that that's the only way that God communicates his will for our lives. He does it sometimes through principle. He does it sometimes through commands. He does it sometimes through prohibitions. And sometimes he does it through storytelling. And there is no story of polygamy in the Old Testament anywhere that paints it in a pretty picture. It always drips with bitterness, envy, rivalry, tensions, etc. God's intention for marriage from the beginning, back in Genesis, was one man, one woman, becoming one flesh. Fifth, what Leah and Rachel longed for was not bad. It was good. A husband is good. A husband's affection is good. Children are good. But they also seemed to long for these good things in a way that betrayed what we might call a heart idol. I think they wanted these things too much. I think these things were everything to them. 
good things, when they become everything to us, become God-like things to us, which is the very nature of idolatry. What's the one thing in your life right now that you think, if only, if I had that, if that would get fixed, if that would go away, if only he, God, would bring this into my life, then I would be satisfied. What's the one thing? Flee idols. Sixth, Jacob's part in all this is severely lacking. He is too passive in this story. He's practically absent from this page, except for the sex. He provides seed. The wives tell him who he's getting tonight. His only words in 30 verses, with all this happening under one roof, his only words in the chapter are mostly not commendable, even if they are theologically true. Chapter 30, verse 1, she said, Give me children or I die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? That's theologically true. That is very insensitive, uncaring, dismissive, unhelpful. And immediately following that sharp rebuke from her husband, Rachel turns to her servant, Bilhah, for this sinful and desperate solution. So, related to that is seventh. These baby wars turn both of these women to surrogacy when their own bodies won't cooperate. In other words, they have their servants sleep with their husband that they might produce a child through the servant. And despite no doubt knowing the family history with Grandma Sarah, who famously turned to Hagar in a moment of desperation. These women do the same thing. Yes, it was a common thing in their culture, but it was not the right thing for God's people. And the the Sarah story, with its negative lessons, that the Hagar-Ishmael experiment did not turn out for for the good. And the positive lesson of the Sarah story, that God can bring a child miraculously whenever, even at 90 or 100. The Sarah story should have kept these wives of Jacob from making the same mistake. Eighth, both women turn to superstitions to accomplish their ends. This is that section about the mandrakes, verses 14 to 18 i got to explain a little bit here. Mandrakes are a plant, apparently, and they're sometimes called the love apple. So there was a superstition in these days that mandrakes brought fertility. So with that in mind, the son, Reuben, brings home to Mother Leah some mandrakes. Rachel, the sister, hears of it. She's jealous. She asks for a mandrake. Leah says, you took my husband. Now you want to take my son's mandrakes? Rachel responds, I'll let you have the husband tonight if you give me a mandrake. It seems made up, right? (laughs) Leah agrees. That night, Leah lies with Jacob. She conceives. It backfires on Rachel. What a mess. Ninth. Despite the idolatry, the scheming, the envy, the concubining, the superstition, God still graciously provides children. In all this, he provides children. He, he multiple times says he, he heard their prayers. He, he listened to their cries. He opened their womb. He did it not because of their schemes and sin, but in spite of it. And yet through it. Tenth. By the end of the section, we have before us one daughter and 11 sons. And these aren't just any children. 
These aren't just good kids like we all want to have. These are promised children. With these 11 and one more still to come, we are well on our way to the 12 sons that will make up the 12 tribes of Israel. If you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with these names. You're like, oh, these guys? These are the tribes. Yeah. From the 12 tribes, we one day have the makeup of the nation of Israel. Imagine those first readers in Moses' day hearing and reading this story. Being reminded of their messed up origins. And yet from those messed up origins, they are now a million plus people about to enter the promised land. That's powerful. From Levi, you get the whole priestly order. The Levites. In Joseph, we'll have later on in Genesis, the rescuer of the family, the preserver of the promised line in days of famine. That occupies the whole last one-fourth of the book of Genesis. Joseph's an important dude. And so is Judah. From one angle, Joseph's important because he keeps alive Judah. From Judah comes the kingly line, the messianic line. In Genesis 49, Jacob, this Jacob, will say to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the nations. It says this, the same, the same passage. Binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He was washed, he has washed his garments in wine. His vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine. The New Testament picks up on that prophecy in a couple different ways. One, that Jesus would be the ruler and that one day he will come again and his judgment will be so severe it'll be as though his clothes are dipped in blood. It all goes back to Genesis 49. It's through Judah. And so we get to Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of our New Testaments. And we're given a genealogy of Jesus Christ. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham, who was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah. It all goes back to this passage right here. It all started... In a context of deception, infertility, rivalry, jealousy, concubines, mandrakes. <laughs> From that, we get a Messiah. One, no surprise, that was born in backwoods Bethlehem. From poor parents of Nazareth. Who would one day... Go all the way to the cross to pay for our sins, but on the third day be, be risen from the dead. Oh, with that in mind, with that stream in mind of God's glorious plan, faithfully executed bit by bit in the ups and downs of the lives of broken people in this dysfunctional family. God graciously fulfills his promises despite family dysfunction and discord, despite human scheming, and despite silly superstitions. God can make something out of nothing. He can make something great out of a hot mess. So you might find yourself today on the receiving end 
of manipulation and deception. You might find yourself today faced with the reality and the ugliness of your own sin. You might find yourself today feeling like you married the wrong person. Or perhaps you're facing your own infertility, tempted to be bitter and envious, tempted to make a child your identity and your defining thing. Or you might come from a family makeup that's anything but typical and normal, and you wonder if anything good can come from your people. Or perhaps you find yourself today in a mysterious holding pattern. You're on year seven of Uncle Laban's farm, and you don't know what you're doing or how you got there. And no doubt, some moms here feel like that in those seemingly endless days of diapers and dishes and disciplining kids. I can't tell you what's going to happen for you. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what God has in store. And I surely can't tell you that if you do A, B, and C, God will surely owe you X, Y, and Z. But I can tell you this. I can tell you that our God can do anything he wants. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. I can tell you that our God loves to work with what seems most messed up and backwards. I can tell you that our God is always doing infinitely more than we can ever think or imagine. I can tell you that he's always in control and he always has been. His sovereign goodness is on brilliant display throughout the Bible and in your life. God is bringing about a plan for sinners for repeat offenders like me who will come to the end of their selves and find their hope solely in the seed of Abraham, the son of God, the Messiah, the one, the one who came to die and was raised on the third day and now lives forevermore, now reigns from on high and will come again to bring perfect justice to this world. I can tell you this, this morning. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. Let's pray. Oh, yes, Lord, we thank you for your power and wisdom on display in biblical history and in our lives. We thank you especially for Jesus at the center of it all. We pray, Lord, we would believe on his name and cast our lot with him and be saved if we're not or to once again know that his mercy is greater than our sin. Help us as we sing that now for Jesus' sake and for our good. Amen.